I'm Tammy Faraday, and you're listening to Brave Journeys, the podcast about amazing people who've navigated life's invariable challenges with courage, authenticity, grit, and grace. As a clinical psychologist and trauma therapist, my next guest, Dr. Ingrid Clayton, always strived to help others overcome their pain. But little did Ingrid know that she too carried hidden wounds that she'd yet to fully comprehend. A fractured self-esteem, substance abuse disorder, perfectionism, and a series of dysfunctional relationships might have indicated that something was amiss. But having been raised in a bewildering haze of gaslighting, Ingrid found herself constantly questioning her own reality. It wasn't until Ingrid stumbled upon a case study by renowned psychiatrist and writer, Dr. Biesel van der Kolk, which eerily mirrored her own experiences, that a profound realisation struck her. The word trauma held a deeply personal resonance. My body was formed, my nervous system was formed, my neural pathways were formed in the context of deep emotional abuse and manipulation. And time doesn't just fix that. It just doesn't. Do you think I would have done any of this if it wasn't absolutely necessary to keep saving my own life, right? Like, I did get sober at 21. I've sat on a million therapy couches. I got three degrees in psychology. I have been doing the work, whatever I thought the work meant at any given point in time. And the truth is, is I was still buried buried under trauma responses I didn't even know were trauma responses. I just thought they were me and something must be fundamentally wrong because I'm trying so hard to live like a normal, successful life. And in some ways I was doing that, but it never solved what was happening in my body. In her gripping memoir, Believing Me, Ingrid fearlessly delves into the legacy of childhood trauma inflicted by a narcissistic, abusive stepfather and a broken, invalidating and enabling mother. As I often say on Brave Journeys, just because you don't name it or acknowledge it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And yet for those who are raised by narcissistic, gaslighting parents, they often doubt their own history, their own truth, and for many, their own sanity. But when Ingrid's stepfather Randy dies, an incontrovertible calling roars from deep within her, urging her to reclaim her narrative and finally tell it in her own words. This is Ingrid's story. If anything you hear during this episode is triggering in any way, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. And please remember if you're in Australia, you can phone Lifeline at any time on 13 double one one four that's one three double one one four welcome Ingrid it is delightful to have you on brave journeys thank you Tam I'm so excited to get to meet you here and have this chat You know, I'm thrilled for a number of reasons. I'm very thrilled because not only is your lived experience personally very resonant, as I've shared with you before now, but your standing as a psychologist of great renown gives you such a unique lens to talk about your own trauma as well as providing this expert perspective. It's an incredibly potent mix. This is just a very long-winded way of me saying, as far as I'm concerned, you're the perfect guest. You start your book with the narcissist's prayer, which goes like this. That didn't happen, and if it did, 
it wasn't that bad. And if it was, that's not a big deal. And if it is, that's not my fault. And if it was, I didn't mean it. And if I did, you deserved it. Ingrid, for anyone who doesn't quite understand what it means to live with a narcissist and the insidious damage that they inflict, how is this prayer, this so-called prayer, such a perfect encapsulation of the denial and the gaslighting and the minimising of poor behaviour and the blame shifting and shame dumping that narcissists are famed for? Well, I mean, you just said it all right there. It's the absolute crazy making, the disorientation of I'm just showing up saying what my truth is. I'm assuming everybody's doing the same and yet I cannot get a foothold. And, you know, I do want to say that narcissist prayer, when I put it in the beginning of the book, I could not attribute it to anyone. I couldn't find who wrote it. Since then, the person who wrote it has unveiled themselves, and and I wish that I knew their name off the top of my head. I don't. I have her um, name. It's Dana Craig. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, because I think, honestly, I probably didn't need to write the book. I could have just written those six or seven lines because whenever that crossed my, you know, Facebook newsfeed or whatever it was many years ago, I just thought that's it. That was my experience growing up. And quite frankly, it was probably the beginning of planting a seed for me to know that it was narcissistic abuse because I didn't know that I couldn't put those pieces together. Right. So it's so powerful. Those lines. So powerful. So powerful. And as you said, the brevity of it, And yet the potency of it is quite extraordinary because anyone who's lived it just reads that and that's like, that's my life. Yeah. No accountability, no empathy, just all of it. It's all in there. (laughs) It's all in there. When you're 10 years old and your younger brother, Josh, is eight, your parents sit you down and they tell you what? Oh, gosh. Uh, (laughs) It just sets me back in that scene. They were getting divorced and... It was this painful conversation, like they didn't want it to happen. We didn't want it to happen. I was like, then what is going on? But yeah, they were splitting. And pretty quickly, my dad moved out and we moved in with the man who was my dad's best friend. (laughs) So I'd known him my whole life, but now he's my mom's boyfriend. So my whole world just got turned upside down really quickly. So this man that we speak of, his name was Randy, and he was your father's best friend. As you said, he'd been a fixture in your life. He'd been part of the tapestry of your life up until that point anyway. What do you think it was that drew your mum to Randy, particularly in such quick succession after the demise of your parents' marriage? Well, I think... My stepdad, I now know, didn't know it then, but had a history of grooming, right? He's very good at going after what he wants and getting it. And so who knows how long he was working my mom before the divorce happened, before the split happened. But I think he had this way, like many narcissists do, of this love bombing, which is, I know what you want. I'm going to get it for you, right? So there was this promise of this better life and maybe more money and getting her out of this town and just kind of wove a fantasy. And she believed it. And quite frankly, he did 
offer some of those things. We moved to this lovely mountain town and they opened a business together and there was more resources than we certainly had before. And so, you know, I think it was this promise of like, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you a better life. What do you think that kind of betrayal did to your dad? Oh boy. You know, all of my parents and step-parents were active alcoholics my whole life. My dad was really struggling with his drinking and had some DUIs and had gone to jail. And I think he was just already feeling so down on himself. And when they split, he had to live in this like really shabby, tiny apartment that barely had room for my brother and I to visit. And we couldn't afford to do anything but go to the dollar movies. And he was just like... A shell of a person. I mean, I just saw it as a child. I felt so sorry for him. He was just trying to kind of pull it together and sort of get his life back on track. But it was a long haul. And I know he was devastated. Well, you so deftly write that alcohol was rotting your entire family tree. And as you've just said, Randy and your mum, as well as your father, were living in active addiction. Ingrid, what are some of the most pronounced memories of the alcohol and drug use you witness as a child? Oh, well, I wrote about one in the book I'll just never forget. I forget my age exactly. I had penciled it out when I wrote it, but I was young and my brother was even younger, two and a half years younger than I. So he was maybe six, maybe I was eight, something like that. The age of my son now, which really puts it in perspective for me. You know, there was just drinking and pot smoking and lines of Coke on the counter all the time. It was just constantly there. But one day my parents and their friends were sitting in a circle on our shag carpet in our very 70s house. And they said, pass the bong to the kids, you know? So it came to me and I held this glass bong in my hands. It just fit perfectly. Of course, I'm a kid. I want to do the big kid things. I want to see what this is all about. And They told me what to do, and I started inhaling, and I saw the fire get brighter, and it scared me, and I stopped and passed it along. And then it goes to my, I guess, five-and-a-half-year-old brother, six, something like that. And he just took the deepest inhale and started coughing so hard and couldn't stop. And all of a sudden, it got serious, like, oh, maybe that wasn't a good idea. You know, we could never do that again. But these were the types of sort of questionable things that were happening all the time, and It started this thing in me where I just was constantly surveying, like, what is normal? What's going on? Where are the secrets? What's hidden? What are other families doing? Me trying to get invited to other families' outings and go to their churches and their events and going, well, gosh, this is really different from what's happening in my home, you know? So the very sort of adult child of alcoholic stuff, I come by all of that very honestly. My hypervigilance started when I was very young. And yeah, I mean, the alcoholism, it's continued through all of my parents' lives. You know, my father passed recently and he was basically a drinker till the end, minus his dementia. And I eventually became an alcoholic myself, much to my trying to do things differently. Except I just this weekend celebrated 28 years clean and sober. So I found a way to break that chain, thank goodness. So my son has never, never seen me taking a drink, never seen me get behind the wheel, never seen me rage and, you know, fall down and all of the things that I saw my parents do on a really regular basis. 
That's pretty remarkable. I mean, it is remarkable because apart from genes, just such a systemic line in your family. Yes. To have been able to overcome that with such grit and having had such difficult circumstances yourself to contend with, which we will get to a little bit later, but that that's just beyond remarkable because you say it in a very matter-of-fact way, Ingrid. I do. I know. You I, really do. That I don't feel the enormity of it because I do, especially when I think about, you know, even my brother who, thank goodness, he's sober now, you know, six plus years, but for decades in his adult life, he was in jail and prison and institutions and homeless. And it is really one of those things where I go, I don't know why that was him for so long. And I got sober at 21. I I can't really wrap my head around it, which is why I think I speak so sort of like, yeah, these are the facts (laughs) because it's a true gift. It's true gift that I don't take for granted. Your mum wholly surrenders herself to Randy and seems to be in abject denial of his behaviour, particularly towards her children. But his treatment of her was often appalling. There was violence. There was raging. There was minimising. There was derogatory speech constantly. You write, the confidence she once possessed had disappeared. Even when she was around, she was always in the background. What do you think accounts for your mum's complete submissiveness when it comes to Randy? I think she really, truly didn't want to have to be a grown up in some sense. I think that's why the promise of a better life and I'll take care of you and don't you worry about it. It was really appealing, right? It's sort of like could kind of just put her hands up and have someone else handle all the stuff. And I think, you know, I can understand the allure of that. If someone's like, I'm going to handle it all. Don't you worry, pretty little thing. It's like, okay. I think what I know now is that similar to me in a lot of ways, my mom leans into the fawning trauma response, which is that codependent people pleasing trauma response where you go, oh, in order to keep myself safe, I need to keep you happy and okay. And Randy was very good. I looked at him sometimes like the guys at the airport who direct the plane, like, no, 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 a little to the left, a little to the right. Like that is who he was. And he did it energetically. He did it with the tone of his voice. He did it with the energy with which he walked into the room. You knew if you were meant to go a little to the left or a little to the right. And like you said, he was emotionally abusive and he could be violent with her and he could withhold, he could withhold resources. I think he was financially abusive to her. So he had her on this very short string and she learned what she needed to do in order to stay in that relationship. And, you know, part of the appeal of moving us away was like, oh, you know, going to these other like little quaint, beautiful towns. But it was also, let me get you away from your family and all of your friends and isolate you in the middle of nowhere in the mountains. And she also didn't have her own resources, didn't have a sense of community. She had Randy. So it happened very quickly, but it was, it was like she just lived in his shadow. I say she didn't say it unless she heard him say it before, because then it was safe. Like I know the script. It felt like she was speaking from a script a lot of the time, 
And it was infuriating as a kid because I was like, you're my mom, right? Like, he's not the one who gets to have a say here. You're the one. And she would just look back at me sort of dumbfounded. Like, I don't really know how to respond to that because she had just turned her power over, which again, you know, fawning trauma response. I think my mom is this very fierce example of that trauma response, chronic, chronic all the time, just lost herself completely. I wasn't even going to ask you this, but now that you've said that, do you think that perhaps that's the way she presented in her marriage with your father? Or was this a very paradigmatic shift in terms of her this new relationship with Randy? I was so young, so it's hard for me to say really, but I can say based on their personalities that I actually think my parents in a lot of ways, my biological parents were the same person. They were very codependent and they both actually went and married a very similar personality type. Their second marriages, my step parents were both the ones who made all the decisions, set the tone of the house. And I lived with my mom and Randy primarily. So that's really the story that I focused on. But but the truth is I could have written a whole nother book about my dad and my stepmom and what was happening in their house. So I find that interesting, right? That my parents were both, they were very young when they met and it was like rock and roll <laughs> and drugs and, and that whole scene. But at the end of the day, it's like they almost both needed someone else to kind of scoop them up and be like, come with me, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of us and and you don't have to be so responsible for yourself and your life. Well, is it fair to say that she was both his victim and his enabler? A hundred percent. Yes. Because she didn't really intervene at any juncture. I didn't get the sense in your exquisite memoir, Believing Me, that she at any stage sort of intervened to protect you or Josh from Randy's rage or from his maltreatment. She just seemed to be very, very, I was going to say invisible herself. I don't know if she was invisible quite because I think that she was conspicuous by her absence. So her presence was very felt because she wasn't actually doing anything. That's a beautiful way to say it, yes. I think you're right. And the very few times that I saw her sort of have a sense of, we got to go, this isn't okay, it just it shifted like that. Nothing ever stayed. Like she always went back to sort of the status quo. Like she wasn't there. She was there, but she wasn't there. And that was what made it so painful because it was like, (laughs) you're the one who's supposed to be taking care of us here. And I don't have anyone else to turn to. Well, at one point, and this was very interesting. Your aunt Janelle, your mum's sister, becomes business partners with Randy and your mum. And she moves into the caretaker unit attached to your home. Ingrid, what causes the irretrievable breakdown of Janelle's relationship with your mum? Because that's something that really devastates you. I think Janelle always had a bit more personality than my mom. And She was not going to be bullied in the same way that my mom was sort of just like, okay, I'm going to go along with it. Like he has all this business sense and all these ideas. And Janelle was like, no, I'm contributing financially to this business. It is my business. And there just can be no other boss in Randy's world. And by no boss, I mean like no one else who even really gets to have a say, you know? And so it was very short-lived and 
I think she also, my aunt, saw the way that Randy was treating my mom personally. So professionally, it was just, I think they were on the rocks like pretty quickly. And then she saw what was happening and tried to convince my mom to leave. And I think at first my mom was like, okay, I'll go. But again, it was another one of those moments where it was like, okay, yeah, this is wrong. I got to get out of here. But by the next day, she was like, "Mm, you know, you're right. This isn't working out. I think you should leave. You know, my mom ended up saying to her sister and they were on the outs, you know, in and out of each other's lives, but a lot of being out of each other's lives for many years as a result. What's it like then? to lose your witness, your corroborator, your champion, and really your only ally? It's such a tricky question, and I'll tell you why. One thing I feared a great deal in publishing this book was backlash. Like, I didn't even know from who, because Randy had passed away, and I'd cleared it with, like, everybody that was in the book, including his children, right? But having grown up in that environment, you're just terrified, like, oh gosh, like don't speak the truth. You're going to get in trouble, right? My whole life, I've been like, move to the left, move to the right. (laughs) And here I was going, I'm breaking down all the boundaries and I'm just going to tell my truth no matter what. But with that came a lot of terror. And one thing that surprised me, I'll tell you what, the backlash was basically zero. Not only have I received un believable feedback from like perfect strangers who say, your story is my story. Thank you for writing it. But the people that I've known my whole life, I've just received nothing but support except for my Aunt Janelle. Wow. Because she and my mom, I think, finally repaired their relationship in some ways once Randy died. And so for me to now come and say these things, my aunt is just fiercely now trying to protect, I think, my mom and started coming after me on Facebook that I'm trauma dumping and I'm spreading the hate to next generations. And so you asked this question because in a lot of ways, when I was growing up, Janelle really was a champion to me. I knew that she saw what was going on. She was willing to call it out. She left, right? She said, I will not tolerate this. We've had a relationship my entire life. It's been very clear. We could say, yeah, what happened was horrific and we don't like that guy and we don't want to be around him. But the second I told the truth out loud, she was no longer on my side. So I feel a little not just a little, but I feel conflicted about it, right? I think in some ways I couldn't see her clearly because in contrast to my mom growing up, my aunt was like amazing, right? Like, oh, so independent and strong. And But I think there was stuff there I couldn't see because again, I was just comparing it to my mom who was doing nothing. And so it's tricky. It's It's really tricky, tricky. these family dynamics. I'm listening to you say this and the terror that you felt about sharing your story. And I just wanted to say to you, why do you think I have never written a book? (laughs) Because when you are raised with that degree of fear and hypervigilance, it is bedded down in your neural pathways. I don't believe you actually ever truly overcome that. I don't. Was it Gabor Mate that said trauma isn't what happens to you, it's what happens inside you? And it endures. It's not something that you can just get over because you want to get over or because the people around you want you to get over it. It's deep down. No, that's right. I just turned 49 years old as evidenced by my gray hair these days. And just today, (laughs) Tam, before I was getting ready to talk to you, I had some downtime. So I was watching a little television in my house, like with nothing else really to do. 
And what did I feel? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah. I still feel it to this day. God forbid I let my guard down in my own house as a grown woman in the middle of the day. It's the first thing I feel. And then I have to attend to that and go, oh, Ingrid, you're not doing anything wrong. Like rest is okay. I have to really actively practice self-compassion and getting into my body in a different way. So yeah, I hear you. Are my triggers and my responses as enormous as they were my whole life? No, they're not. So is healing possible? I want to make it really clear that I think that it is. But to your other point, I think, yeah, we are forever changed. My body was formed. My nervous system was formed. My neural pathways were formed in the context of deep emotional abuse and manipulation. And Time doesn't just fix that. It just doesn't. Like a lot of people wish that it would. Like my aunt is like, come on, that was decades ago. And I'm like, yeah, and guess who's still living with it today? Do you think I would have done any of this if it wasn't absolutely necessary to keep saving my own life, right? Like I did get sober at 21. I've sat on a million therapy couches. I got three degrees in psychology. I have been doing the work, whatever I thought the work meant at any given point in time. And the truth is, is I was still buried, buried under trauma responses. I didn't even know were trauma responses. I just thought they were me and something must be fundamentally wrong because I'm trying so hard to live like a normal, successful life. And in some ways I was doing that, but it never solved what was happening in my body, right? So we're living with this thing. This is why the conversation of complex PTSD is such an important one because so many of us are living with these things and we go, well, I saw a therapist for anxiety and I thought it was maybe depression and oh, maybe I just have low self-esteem and, oh, I'm just ashamed of everything. And it's like, we don't realize that all of these symptoms, including my alcoholism, including so many other things, falls under the umbrella of complex PTSD. That's what that is. We are living in traumatized bodies that you couldn't really see it that way because I didn't have a car crash or a natural disaster or come back from war. Like our historical ideas of trauma. Thank goodness we're learning better and doing better more recently, but we really thought that's what it was. If everyone could agree that that was an obviously traumatic event, then you can be traumatized. And to your other point, the beautiful Gabor Mate quote, it's not about the event necessarily. It's what overwhelms your nervous system. And with complex yes. trauma, Sorry, I'm going off on a soapbox here for a minute, but I'm just going to do no, it. No, please. Oh, my goodness. You're speaking my language. Keep going. Which is synonymous. I think it's confusing because we also talk about it as developmental trauma, relational trauma, childhood trauma, complex trauma. You can use them interchangeably. It's the ongoing, pervasive, chronic issues related to overwhelm in your nervous system. And it didn't look obvious, right? To me, it was like, I'm living in this beautiful house and I'm getting school clothes and I'm being driven to school and I have enough lunch money, but I'm being groomed by my stepdad. I'm given the silent treatment for months on end. I have no real actual support or interest of who I am as a person trying to help me grow up. In fact, I'm 
the one looking at my parents and trying to figure out how do I solve their problems so that maybe they can finally see me as a whole person, right? So in that way, even though I feel so kind of let down by this field that I am in as a mental health professional, because we have been sort of misguided for so long, I am just grateful that the conversation is finally shifting. And I think every therapist needs to be a lot more than trauma informed, which means, oh yeah, I've heard about trauma. They need to be trauma trained because too many things are originating from this experience of an overwhelmed nervous dysregulation, not knowing how to process our emotions, feel them in the body. And so we're just coping, 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 never really living. Never living. And it's, it's quite extraordinary to have this conversation with you because, you know, I've, I've spoken about this actually on the show before. I was diagnosed at 30 with hypertension and autoimmune condition. Never, ever understood. Just thought that was me. That's right. Until a blood pressure specialist said, mm. hypervigilance, terror and trauma as a child that's unrelenting and is not addressed will turn your hypertension on because it's inexplicable genetically in your family why this has landed on you. Wow. And generalised anxiety that I've lived with my entire life, but I thought that was just me. I've said that so often. I thought it was me. I never dreamt for a second that there was something extraneous to my personality. That's right. I didn't realise that it was beyond me. It was something that had happened to me. That's right. And therefore, when you are hypervigilant and you are frightened and you are scared and you are waiting for the other shoe to drop and you have to placate the adults and you have to make sure that you don't rock the status quo and you imbibe that silent commandment, which is be deferential, be less than invisible, never, ever, ever raise your head above the precipice. Mm -hmm. Just make yourself as small as possible so that you are not the cause of any additional conflagration. It does something to your system. That's right. And it took me until my 40s to put actually the dots together. That's right. Like so many of us, and and you're also making another really important point that I sort of implicated just the mental health field, but I think the medical field generally, right? Like how many of us have autoimmune stuff? I have tons. I was having migraines and all these other physical symptoms and it was all just like, well, gosh, Ingrid, you better manage your stress, you know, or with the anxiety stuff. It's like, oh, goodness, those like disordered thoughts, like you should practice affirmations. And, you know, and I did, I went and did all the things. And, and I talk about that in the book, it was like weeding the garden with kitchen scissors, just like chopping off all the visible leaves and never, ever, ever, ever getting to the roots underneath. And it's maddening. It is that whack-a-mole game, right? Like I'm going to fix this symptom and that symptom and that symptom, never getting actual relief, but having all these diagnoses now, right? So that's the other piece. It's like, well, so now I'm just a walking sort of diagnosis (laughs) who can't sort of actually get any traction and feel better. What a sentence to hand down to folks. And it's still happening, right? Like, thank goodness you had a physician or a clinician who was able to say like, you know where this results from, right? But so many people have yet to have that light bulb moment, which is the other reason that I go, listen, if I even was a clinical psychologist who worked with trauma and couldn't put the dots together in my own story until finally one day I could, I know 
there are so many folks who cannot see the through line. And I feel really called to offer my story as a potential mirror so that maybe it's like, oh, I experienced that and I identified that. And oh, here's the language for it. Here are the actual tools that can be helpful with that kind of stuff. I don't know if I do nothing else on this planet. I feel like I can do that. I can do that. I can lay my story bare to this day and say, I still don't have it all figured out. I still have triggers I'm going to. I'm a work in progress. But let me share that too. So that we can come back to some sense of like humanity, right? Because toxic shame is one of the biggest features of complex PTSD. I am broken. I am wrong. Everyone else is doing it okay. And so it's the other reason why I say I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a trauma therapist. I've written these books. And you know what I did this morning? I I have to make the humanness more important and tuck my credentials in my back pocket because in so many ways that doesn't matter. Like we can all wear these great hats and be like, yes, I'm an expert and I can use this voice and I can tell you these things. And then everyone else just feels what I felt my whole life. Like, oh, well, she's got it all figured out and I must be doing something wrong. It's like, no, 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 no. We are all walking this walk together. And break down those barriers and stop perpetuating this idea that there's a finish line, right? And I'm going to sell it to you. (laughs) I'm going to sell it to you because what a great marketing tool. Yeah. What is it like for a child to grow up in a home where the only thing that is foreseeable and consistent is unpredictability, fear, and chaos? It's heartbreaking. (laughs) It's so heartbreaking. You know, you and I are both moms and I I really do. I think about it now with my son and I'm going to tell you, becoming a mother rocks my world. The way that it calls me to really break some cycles in ways that are not intuitive or comfortable or any of it, but the way that it forces me into like really having to see who is my actual son, not the fantasy child I had in my head my whole life. Who's my actual son and what does he actually need from me? And most of it is me regulating my nervous system even more so that I can just give him an opportunity to have the full range of human experience, right? I'm not going to whittle him down little to the left, little to the right, even though sometimes more than I'm comfortable with, my nervous system wants him to do that. Like, don't make me more uncomfortable than I already, can't you just, you know, which is what was done to me. And I have to find ways to pause practice self-compassion for myself because talk about the shame of that and go, how can I do this differently for him? And I'm telling you, it's the hardest thing I'm ever going to do. And it's work. Like for me, it is. I don't know if every trauma survivor feels that way. So it doesn't come intuitively, like all those ideas of like, well, I'm just going to be a mom and my beautiful motherly instincts are just going to download into my body. It's like, no, I have the same nervous system that I had before I was a mom. I have the same tools. I have the same history. And so to take what you just said and turn it on its head, right? Predictability, lack of fear, true unconditional love, 
I am having to figure out how to bring these things. I mean, it's like I'm literally having to build it in the ground up in my own body as I'm trying to offer it to him. In real time. That's right. That's right. Well, it's really interesting. Like I have found, I was going to speak to you about this a bit later, but I've found that motherhood has been my great, I I don't know how to say this without crying, but it's been my greatest redemption. Mm. But it's probably the most brutal trigger. Yes. Me too. Me too. How old, you have more than one child. I know you have an eight-year-old like me. I have four four children. Four children. Oh, my goodness. What are their ages? So from 14 down to eight. I had them pretty close. 14 to eight. That's amazing. But, you know, there is such a confrontation when every decision, parental decision that you make, and you and I are not sitting here in any way saying that we are perfect parents. Oh, Lord, no. That's not where this is coming from. <laughs> but what we're saying is that there is such an intentionality yes. with our parenting yes. because it's like, <laughs> I'm going to be glib here, but it's doing the George Costanza. It's basically saying I'm going to do the opposite yeah. of what I have seen, yeah. of what I have had done to me. Yes. I'm going to choose in every moment. Yes. It, it becomes less of a conscious thing over a period of time, yeah. particularly if you're a very loving, giving, generous type. But if I've never had a book read to me, I'm going to read three books. If I've never known what it is to feel unconditional love, my children are going to know every single day of their lives that they are loved unconditionally. So it's a very conscious type of parenting. And I think for other people, it might feel a little bit more organic who haven't had these experiences. But it's very confronting because if you try to tend, and I don't want to speak in psychobabble, but if you try to tend to your own inner child... Yeah. You weep for them. That's right. That's right. You're grateful you can do it differently and you're so grateful that you have a chance to live again almost and to Mm. do it differently. But in doing it differently, there has to be a knowing, a gnosis that you didn't have any of that growing up. And that's really confronting and that's every day because your parenthood doesn't stop. It's an eternal journey. That's right. So there's a real true grieving involved, I think, in any trauma healing work, but specifically as we're relating it to parenting our kids now that it's like, yeah, you're grieving what you didn't have. And I will put an and on that. I do sort of think it's amazing and such a gift that this whole idea of reparenting ourselves actually works, that I really believe for so long, like, I couldn't fix it within me. Someone else had to do it. They broke it. They had to fix it. And what a relief to know that we truly can. And in some ways, I wish it was the opposite. Like if you weren't read to, you read them three books. I would say if you weren't read to, you got to go figure out how to read. And then you start like reading, right? So there's a deficit of not knowing how to do the thing. But in that space is where we learn. In that space is where we truly learn. It's not just a theory or an idea. It's an embodied learning that stays with us and that we can build on and that does change us and everyone around us. And what a powerful thing that is. 
You know, you just said that we sort of embody this learning. I think we also finally, if I can say this, I don't want to speak for you, we embody living. Yes, yes, yes. It's the first time you feel like you're living with joy. Yes, with joy and with spontaneity. Even just yes. lately I have found that I'll say, like, let's go and do this thing and this last minute thing that I never would have done before, right? It's like, no, 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 we're going to get in trouble. Don't color outside the lines. And I noticed it and it was so fun just to reflect on it with my husband, like, look at us, like out just living, doing very simple things. But it's a big deal when you feel like you're walking a tightrope and suddenly you can step off and like walk around the cabin. But that also requires intentionality. And it really requires, ironically, how do you say this? It's almost like an inverse discipline. It's a discipline to be spontaneous. It's a discipline to say it's the middle of the day and I actually don't have something to do. And you know what? I work like a Trojan. I owe nobody anything. I'm going to watch television for 10 minutes and nothing terrible is going to happen. Like when we have been raised in environments that are so controlled and controlling and you as you say you're so terrified of deviating from a set of rules you don't even know what they are because they change on a daily basis there's no consistency as far as what will cause the next punishment when the next eruption will happen Mm -hmm. and so for children who were born in families or in circumstances like this their ability as you say to be spontaneous or to be kind to themselves or to just let things occur or to say you know what I'm not going to go back to work now I'm going to be present I'm going to do something fun with my kid I know the millions of tasks that I've got Mm -hmm. and I know what it is to be conscientious and dutiful and provide service to everyone I know but I can also just be. It's really hard to learn that. It's really, really hard to embody that. But it's almost like those pathways were also disrupted, really disrupted. 100%. Yeah, they were. They were not just disrupted, they were corrupted. Like it wasn't safe. And the body will always privilege safety, right? So we come by all of this very honestly, like our body's just like figuring out what is safe. It's not interested in like what our opinions are, what we'd like to do, what we think someone else is doing. It's about safety 100%. And not much was very safe growing up. Most of it was very unsafe. Ingrid, at 13, you're sitting outside in your hot tub one evening looking at the night sky. Randy joins you uninvited. What makes you say, I knew I couldn't trust him, but I couldn't trust my intuition in that situation either? Mm. It was the first time where he was more overt in his pursuing me sexually. And he was blurring boundaries, like, come over here. And, oh, I'm so glad you don't seem to mind. Other girls would be really uptight. And all of it eventually just made my hair stand up. But he's acting like this is no big deal, right? So, again, the body privileges safety. I can't really call out what I think is happening because that's not safe but I can't go along with it either. And so I sort of can't believe that at that age, I found a way to kind of neutrally respond with this, like, well, what do you mean? Why would you say that this wouldn't 
be okay the way that you're trying to touch me and hold me. And then he gave me a response, which let me know this isn't safe. But again, I have the mind and the experience of a 13-year-old. I think I'd maybe kissed a couple of boys at that point, right? But I'm just pretty naive. So I was left in this kind of no man's land of I cannot trust him. I cannot trust him. But the people that are meant to help me know how to trust myself are actually taking real advantage of that or completely not showing up for that task. And so I'm left alone to try to figure out, discern, unpack. And in a lot of ways, I just swallowed it down. Like, okay, here's another thing I'm going to just have to cope with and live with and, and figure out how to navigate. It almost feels like a physical feeling in my body right now, even in the memory, that it was something in that moment that was lodged in me that said, you are less safe than you even knew before and you're out of your depth. But guess what? This is your life and you're going to have to figure it out. You speak about being a ghost in your childhood home, a more perfect description for a child who's calculatedly ignored, I'm yet to find. What does it look like to be either deliberately overlooked by Randy for prolonged periods, as you said earlier, it could be for months on end, or alternatively, the focus of his anything but paternal affection? Yeah, gosh. I didn't even know the language of the silent treatment growing up. I don't know when I first got that, but I was like, that's it. It was the silent treatment. I now know the very sort of common constellations and narcissistic family systems is there's a scapegoat, which was me, and there's a golden child, which was my stepbrother, Randy's youngest son. And there's kind of the invisible child often, which ended up being my stepbrother, Josh. He was kind of neither here nor there, just kind of lost in the shuffle. And so because I lived with my brothers and we were being driven to school together and breakfast happened at the same time, there was like the seeming sort of like normal family function with them, even something so small as like, good morning, boys. How did you sleep, John? Right? Just like these things. And no one asked me that question, right? No one said, what would you like for breakfast? I just didn't exist. And then we would pile into the minivan. It's a 45 minute drive and these conversations are going on around me. And I, I literally did feel like it goes. I was completely X'd out of my own home, the place that you're meant to feel the safest. And then it would flip. It would flip from not existing, like you're not even worthy of a good morning, right? And that's how it feels in your body. So when we talk about that toxic shame, well, we come by that pretty honestly too. It was like, I was told in every way possible, you don't matter unless I say you matter, okay? And here I am just a girl trying to be a girl in the world and like, I'm in my choir at school and wanting to hang out with friends and I'm just wanting to be seen and have this life that I see other people afforded on a regular basis. It's like, why is this so hard? And then one day I would go from being iced out to like, hey, from Randy, uh, Ingrid, I'd like to take you out to lunch. And it was so disorienting, right? And it would flip that quickly. And suddenly I'm being paid attention to and it's kind of secret 
it's not in the face of the family at the breakfast table. It's like, I'm going to scoop you up and take you away. And no one's going to see your mom's not going to be there, even though they work for the same business. Like she doesn't probably know at all that he's picking me up and taking me to lunch. She would never pick me up and take me to lunch. It's just this very odd thing, buying me gifts, et cetera. And so when those moments happened and I go from, and I talked about this, it's like I went from being in a black and white world to full vibrant color. It's like suddenly I exist. And I knew it was manipulative. I maybe didn't have that language as a teenager. I don't know. But I knew it was manipulative. I knew I hated him for it. And I knew I would rather live in color than in black and white. I would rather have the gifts than be ignored. I would rather have the attention, even if it felt a little like, oh, I don't know where this is going, than being grounded for months on end, can't see your friends, can't do anything. You know, you're not allowed to have any freedoms. And so my body was like, okay, here's where my fawning response came on. How do I keep him you know, happy enough, but at a safe enough distance, but I'm going to smile because I know he needs me to smile right now. I was like a puppet on strings, right? Trying to figure out how to make these moments last just a little bit longer. And it never did. It always went back and forth, right? What I now know is intermittent reinforcement which we talk about with trauma bonding. It's the same thing they use in Vegas to keep you sitting at the slot machine. It's like, I'm going to give you nothing, 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 but there's the promise of something and it could be great. And it hooks our nervous system. And it became the basis for almost every single relationship I had for the rest of my life is that I learned that relationships are trauma bonds. And so I found unavailable, abusive, lying, actively addicted partners. And I was waiting for them to flip the switch for it to be good all the time. And hopefully this time it's going to stay, you know, hopefully this time. And I had no idea that's what I was doing. Didn't know it was trauma bonding. Didn't know it was trauma reenactment. And just this language that it's a thing and it's not just me and that it makes sense that I did this, that that's what my nervous system knew was safety. It was so helpful to reduce the shame because I didn't know why I did it. And I asked therapists, like, why do I keep dating the same person with a different face? Like I knew I wanted a healthy reciprocal relationship and I could not find it to save my life. Well, you you write this line seared my soul, but you said red flags don't look like red flags when they feel like home. That's right. I never knew that. I didn't know what a red flag was. How do you know what a red flag is when your own parents are lying to you, right? And like turning the other cheek and you don't really matter. It's like, I just learned that that's what relationship was, even though my brain knew it was wrong. And that's the thing that really was so helpful for me to understand because I always knew all of this was wrong. Like I always knew I wanted something different. My body had never experienced anything different. My body had no idea how to find safety outside of that trauma-bonded experience. So it's like it was incapable. Again, the body's not really interested in my opinions and information about trauma bonding. In fact, it lives in a very different part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that is the last to evolve. This trauma piece is much more primitive, right? It's in our instincts. And if you're not working on it from that 
perspective from a body-based, what we say, ground up, bottom up perspective, again, you're not working on the roots. So I had all this information and a head full of opinions and desires to do things differently. I could tell my story back and forth and I'm still choosing abusers (laughs) and I can't understand it. And now I do. And thank goodness. Without warning, your mum leaves for Texas because your grandfather suddenly becomes ill. With no mother there to provide even tacit protection, what does Randy propose when you're 16? He just showed up in my bedroom doorway and said, how'd you like to go to Vegas? And I thought it was hypothetical. I thought it was maybe sometime in the future, maybe the whole family. I had no idea. But he meant just he and I that weekend. And that became clear pretty quickly. And I was a little like, what and why? And and then he did just like he did in that hot tub, right? He starts to kind of like weave this manipulation so that you lose your balance. And well, if you don't want to go, I'll just take John, he says. And now I'm like, well, I your offer, of course I want to go. And well, I just thought you'd want to go because as a musician, you'd want to witness that sort of professionalism, you know? And you're like, oh, well, yeah, I want to take music seriously, right? So again, I'm a kid, offer this proposition. I don't really understand it. I know it doesn't feel right. He basically tells me I've already told your brothers a lie that I'm going out of town on business and I've kind of already arranged for them to go somewhere else this weekend and they think you're going to be staying at your friend's. So I'm like, okay, the lie's already in place. It's happening so fast. It almost felt like he and I were planning this together. And Ingrid, pack your bags, but leave them in your closet. Don't tell the boys. I'll come back after I drop you guys at school. Come back to the house and get your luggage, and then we'll go. And that's what we did when I was 16 years old. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit because I want to have you here for the next 12 hours, but I don't (laughs) think that you have that amount of time. You go to Vegas. Mm. Randy introduces you as his girlfriend? I think that he does, but I never hear it. He's parading me around like a girlfriend, right? Like it's all these unspoken. I knew I had, well, he took me to dress older. He said I had to dress more sophisticated. I needed to hold his hand. Everywhere we went, he's parading me around like a girlfriend, but I never hear him say it at that time. So there's the confusion, right? Like, well, is he really parading me around like a girlfriend or is it like he's saying that I'm underage and so he just needs me to appear older so we don't get in trouble, right? That's the narrative. He books a hotel room with mirrors on the ceiling and one solitary king-size bed. The pretext of you going to Las Vegas was that you were a gifted singer and he says that he'd like to expose you to some real professionals, except he takes you to a topless show. But you don't believe he wants to assault you. What do you think is his reason for taking you there? Because I believe, I believe to this day, it's part of his ego, right? He doesn't want to overpower someone to the extent that they have no agency of wanting him back. He wants to be wanted. He wanted me to want him the way he wanted me. 
And I think he thought if he took me on this adventure and bought me all these gifts and took me to this grand hotel and on and on and on, that I would be swept up in it. And I was a little swept up in it, but never, ever, ever to the extent that he would want me to be. By the time you are a senior in high school, alcohol has become a big part of your life. And around this time, you confide in your school counsellor, Karen, who's a mandated reporter of child abuse and neglect. What do you initially share with her? Because you don't tell her about what's happened in Vegas. You tell her something else. What is it that you share with her? So sometime after Vegas, we go back to the silent treatment to every now and then. He sits me down one day in this very confessional way on his bed in his bedroom. My mom isn't home. And he says, you know, I have feelings for you that a stepdad should not have for a stepdaughter. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like he knows. And he says, basically the shame is so bad. That's when I can't even look in your direction. I feel so bad. And then when I feel more comfortable with those feelings, I want to give you the world. Like I feel like we're kindred spirits and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like this is a horrific conversation, first of all, because you shouldn't be saying this to me. You should be saying this to a professional, but you are saying it to me. And so it kind of gives me a little bit of hope, like maybe it's going to change. And what I saw really quickly is that it was another attempt to see if I would love him that way. And when I said instead, I'm glad you're talking about this, but I'm probably not the most appropriate person to tell. He did the exact same thing that he just admitted that he does. And he goes from a place of loving me to hating me instantly. It was all over his face, like you, right? Like basically I'm now back to being a disgusting person who's under his thumb. And he walks out of the room and all of it just eventually was just too much. Like I just couldn't keep living with all of it. And I was always someone who kind of told my friends what was going on and maybe told bits to the counselor, social services. I had been interviewed by them many years ago, just really related to the alcoholism in the home. And they were basically like, we thought there was physical abuse happening in the home. So basically if that's not happening, it doesn't really count (laughs) was the message that I got. And so I'm just was holding all this until I couldn't really hold it anymore. And I told my counselor everything. And she said, Ingrid, I have to report this to social services, but I'd like you to do it with me or to even kind of like take the lead on it so that you can feel a sense of showing up for yourself, which was a little overwhelming, but I was like, okay, you know, if you think that's the good idea and that's what happened. So you call your your father, and you tell him about Las Vegas, you tell him about what Randy has said to you, you tell him he doesn't need to come, but you wanted him to be aware of what was going on. Yes. And then can you just paint the picture for me? Because this was just such a pivotal moment really in your life. People start to assemble. So your mother turns up and your brother's there as well. And it seems like your brother is disclosing finally that Randy has a temper and that he has witnessed your mother being violently hurt. What does your mum say? Well, yes, it all felt very official and hopeful in the sense that Karen said, before we call in your stepdad, let's ask your mom to come and let's tell your mom what's going on. So at first it was just my mom and the two social workers and the school counselor. And yes, my brothers were invited in both Josh and John. And 
I ended up saying everything, everything, probably from the hot tub, just all of it. And my mom said, I don't want to talk about this anymore until Randy gets here. He needs to get here right now. And she wouldn't look me in the eye. And she sat like a literal stone, just almost like she wasn't even breathing. And I just knew that's it. This was a waste of time. Nothing's going to change. And she called Randy. She brought him into that meeting. He came in huffing and puffing. Basically, what the hell is going on here? Who do you think you are having this meeting without me? The whole energy has changed and I have to kind of say it all again. And he just says, I'm a liar. I made it all up, right? Like Ingrid's just mad that she has more chores than her friends and we don't give her as many freedoms and maybe we do drink too much. I'll give him that. But that's it. The rest of it is a bold-faced lie. And we were mandated to family therapy, which was a joke. <laughs> you know, this woman was out of her depth, 100%. We were all out of our depth. No one was sort of up to the challenge of Randy. And what happened with the social workers happened again with now this new therapist in her office. Randy's just coming in charging. I can't believe we're here because of Ingrid's lies and this is absurd. And I'm like, but if I'm lying about it, how would I know about Wayne Newton? And how would I know about the slot machines and your hands getting so dirty? Like I have details about Vegas now because I've been, how could I be making this up? And, you know, there were a couple of things that stayed with me from that session for the rest of my life. One of which is Randy turned to his son and said, John, you've always been my favorite child. Okay, so he has two other children and he has two stepchildren in the room, but now we're, we're playing favorites. Okay, well, that's what we're going to do. But my mom then, again, if she's heard him say it before, it must be her cue. That's her script. So she turns to my brother, my only biological sibling, and says, Josh, you've always been my favorite. And I'm like, okay, great. I'm glad the scorecard is out. Like, I'm at the very bottom here. I'm the troublemaker, the liar, and now clearly not your favorite child. And when she turns to me, she says, I believe that you believe those things happened with Randy, but I don't believe that they did. And I just felt it instantaneously. Like, you don't want to call me a liar directly. So you're just making me delusional instead. It's zero consolation. It's horrific. And this is a waste of time. And in fact, my brother Josh said as much, this is a waste of time. I'm going to get back in the car with all of us. And we're going to go back to our house in the middle of nowhere And the only one that's going to be able to take care of me is me. And Josh moved out. He went to live with our dad. John moved out. He went to live with his mom. And I was close to graduating and wasn't going to let go of the few shreds of sanity that I had in my life at all, which was music in the school that I was in and my friendships. And I knew that things weren't any better at my dad's house, right? Came with its own other set of problems, only I had no community. I had no other resources. So I stayed until the moment I could leave (laughs) for good. Well, you liken the crippling anxiety you feel to being at the very top of a roller coaster ride with no prospect of coming down. And you say, I couldn't relax or switch off without alcohol or drugs. I was hypervigilant, on edge and waiting for the next terrible thing to happen, all the while doubting myself, doubting what my own body knew, perched dangerously high above the ground, telling myself their version of the story, one fit the unthinkable outcome I was living. Now this is the clincher. I didn't have bruises. She never left him, meaning your mother. He didn't actually rape me. Maybe I wasn't worth believing. Maybe it wasn't that bad. 
Why do people who are constantly gaslit and invalidated as children learn to not trust their gut? Because the people that are meant, again, to help you figure out how to trust yourself by reflecting it back, right? Like we have mirror neurons in our brains that we grow in relationship. We are a species unlike many others. We live with our parents until we're 18 years old, right? It takes a long time to grow a person. And we grow relationally. And when that relationship is distorted, it distorts your sense of self. And so that gaslighting of that didn't happen and it's no big deal and you're a liar and you're selfish, on some level, I never thought, oh, I made it all up right? But I did interpret it as maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe it really wasn't. I mean, he took me to Vegas. He didn't rape me, right? Well, he tried to kiss me another time, but oh, you know, it was just that one time, right? Like maybe it wasn't that bad because there are people who have been actually sexually assaulted, right? And this is the trauma yardstick that a lot of us use all the time is that we minimize our experience because unfortunately we have a lot of examples of other horrific things that have happened to other people. You know, we come by it honestly. We just go, ugh. And the other piece is that with childhood trauma in particular, this idea, right, that we're raised up for almost two decades, we are hardwired to really invest in our caregivers. We literally need them to survive. So most children would rather interpret what's going on as their fault because now I can fix it. If it's me, I can change it, right? Then live with the reality that I am not safe. I'm not being taken care of. So there's just a combination of things going on. Just the way that we're wired to invest in our caregivers as the end-all be-all, and to believe in them more than we're meant to believe in ourselves, in part because they're meant to reflect that back, right? And gaslighting, that this is what gaslighting does. So many of us, long after the fact, we self-gaslight. Maybe it was me. Maybe I was blowing it up. Maybe I misinterpreted. Maybe it wasn't that bad. And I now know that it was that bad. And there is no trauma measuring stick where I'm allowed to have experienced what I experienced and been impacted the way that I was. My impact is my impact, period. And it's not because I did anything wrong. My body was genius. It responded exactly the way it was meant to respond in order to survive those circumstances. Our trauma responses are genius, right? Whew, I'm just turning all that shame on its head. It's like, no, 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 no. Part of me had to believe it was me to survive those awful circumstances and think, you know, maybe my parents do actually really love me because the heartbreak of feeling that they don't, oh man. It's too much. It's too much. It's the devastation of that is worse. Is worse. Yes. Is absolutely worse. Yeah. Yeah. We've spoken about your sobriety. To your remarkable credit, you become sober at 21. What does sobriety mean for you? I'm talking about when you became sober, maybe less so now. Because once the numbing agent is gone, I'd imagine that overwhelming feelings and unresolved pain come back with a vengeance. 
They did. They did to the point where I was like, what is the point of this sobriety? You're never going to change what happened to me. You're never going to change my story and how it feels and how it's still living in my system. And thank goodness, I still just didn't drink for one day at a time. And I leaned into whatever felt supportive on each given day. I think sobriety, you know, fundamentally, I have a shot at everything else. Sobriety to me is the foundation. Sobriety to me is like a base level of consciousness. Can I still kind of like act out and try to check out in all kinds of other ways? Sure. Yes, I can. I'm human. But those big ways that I was turning to, to completely shut her down by saying that's no longer available to me, I now have a shot at everything else. And it really was foundational from that consciousness standpoint, but also relationally to finally like meet some people that seemed genuinely interested in knowing me and in my best interest and helping me with that path and helping me not be a compulsive liar because a part of my fawning was, oh, I think this is the answer that you want to hear. And so I'm going to say it even just about the most mundane, stupid things. I would just lie, right? I learned that I didn't have to, that it was okay to be me. I could find safety in being me in any circumstance. And it's just, you know, it's grown and changed, of course, over the years. I wanted sobriety to fix it. I wanted sobriety to be the end of my path. Like, whoo, figured that out. Fantastic. And ultimately, what I found for me personally is that it was necessary. But in a lot of ways, it was a starting line, not a finish line, because the trauma work is separate. And I didn't know that for many, many years. Fast forward to 2004. You're 29, midway through your Master's of Psychology and well on your way to becoming a licensed psychotherapist. And one afternoon, you attend a training session at the Dual Diagnosis Treatment Center where you're an intern. And lo and behold, internationally distinguished psychiatrist and leader in the field of traumatic stress, the incredible Dr. Beesel van der Kolk, shares a case study. Why does time start to slow? Oh my gosh. It was the first time in my entire life that I heard someone telling my story, what happened to me. I mean, it was almost identical, but he was telling it from a place of such compassion. And like, you can understand, right? How this young woman would need the drugs and alcohol, that the psychic pain of living with the things that she had been to, it was too overwhelming. And he was telling my story, but he was using words like trauma. And At that point, I could not own that word as personal to me, in part because even though I'm here with a leader in post-traumatic stress telling me otherwise, essentially, the larger vision is still that trauma are these specific agreed upon things. And they were not my experience. And so I even went after this training at some point in time and like went back to the diagnostic manual, the DSM, and I'm looking at PTSD, which is what he was saying this case study person had. And I'm like, I don't fit the criteria. Life-threatening situation, right? I was like, I wasn't held at gunpoint. So I then I feel even more shame Because now I identify with what he's saying, but I don't deserve the compassion that that woman is getting. So I went underground even deeper, thinking it's just me. There's something wrong with me, but I can't let anybody know. Because now 
I'm training to be a clinician to help other people. Like with my alcoholism, I'm like, yes, I'm an alcoholic, but I have recovery, right? I feel like I can offer something there personally and professionally. With my trauma, it was just like no one can know how impacted I still feel. And even I can't know it. I mean, that's how powerful that sort of denial went. It was just like, not for me. It was well over a decade until I could barely scratch that surface again. It took my stepdad dying for me to be able to scratch that surface. Well, Randy dies in 2017. And after his death, you tell your mum that you're writing a book about your entire childhood, including your battle with sobriety. But particularly, you wanted to talk about being basically raised in the home where Randy reigned supreme. You go on to say that never talking about it with her feels dishonest and that it's really, really impacting any chance of a relationship with her. And you give her basically an ultimatum in that you say, I want there to be a better relationship, but only if there's an acknowledgement of what happened. How does she respond? I mean, in a way, she kind of kicked the can down the road initially, like, I hear you and that makes sense and I hope you do what's best for you. I can't really talk about it right now. And in that, I was like, okay, she can't talk about it right now. So I can give her more time. I've been waiting decades, right? What's a little more time? And when a little more time and a little more time passed, it just became clear to me that it was never going to happen. And I couldn't keep waiting. And in fact, I realized that all of my waiting was me kicking the can down the road of my own healing because I kept thinking and I really did think that if she didn't acknowledge it, if she didn't validate it, if she didn't come around and go, oh my gosh, Ingrid, that was so horrible. I'm so sorry. How could I put you in that position that I would never be able to heal? And in fact, what I had to do, this is why my book ended up being called Believing Me. I had to stop waiting for anyone else to validate what happened. And I had to do it at any cost, at any cost. And when I did that, my life changed. Ingrid, towards the end of your memoir, you acknowledge, just as you've said, that just because they could never see me, I don't have to be invisible. I wrote my way to a new ending that allowed me to be seen and heard, even if it was only by me. Darling Ingrid, we all see you. Thank you for being a guiding light, for showing us how to reclaim our histories, our truth and our pain. Thank you for inspiring us to rewrite our own endings. Thank you for reminding us that staying in relationships with people who believe we're broken only makes us believe we are. But most of all, thank you so much for joining me on Brave Journeys. It's been such a privilege to share this hour and a half with you, my perfect guest. I'm overwhelmed even just by you encapsulating all of that. Thank you for reading my story. I just can feel the way you're holding it and the way that you reflect it back to me. It's another layer of my own healing. I feel that you know where I'm coming from 100%, which also makes me feel less alone. And this is such a gift. Thank you for helping me to share it so that hopefully more people don't have to stay locked in that awful straitjacket. You're divine. I am honoured. I'm thrilled. Thank you, Tam. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. Brave Journeys was created, hosted and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But it wouldn't happen without my wonderful team behind the scenes, most notably my audio editor, Melissa May, and the remarkable George Weinberg and Ursula Ferguson. Please join me by subscribing to Brave Journeys on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love the show, please don't forget to rate it, leave a review, and tell your friends and family about it. To discuss the episode or ask me any questions, you can find me on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. And finally, we are so excited to announce that by popular demand, Brave Journeys is now mobile. So you can experience the magic of Brave Journeys up close and personal with Brave Journeys live on stage at your organization, conference or next live event. To find out more, please contact Ursula at Ursula at TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. I'm Tam Faraday and I'll see you next week. Thank you.